0: Matthew twenty one through 16. The laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and, to the, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when, ev- and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last, uh, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I don't need that actually. Got one of these. Thanks, Lauren. Well, hey, my name's Cameron, and I used to be one of the pastors here. Uh, I am the lead pastor over at Door of Hope Northeast, which is just uh, way, way up north, way up north over there, about two miles from here, uh, 9th and Fremont. And it is an honor to be with you. Uh, My voice is a little frauge this morning. Um, I don't have, co- my, between my kids and my wife and myself, we've taken about 15 COVID tests in the last three weeks. It turns out you still can get other respiratory issues, uh, and whenever your children are in daycare, it's just a constant parade, constant parade. Um, but this particular one is on the, on the home stretch. I, I don't think I'm of any Particular danger to you, at least. Let's hope not. Um, Yeah, it's so good to be with you. Such an honor to be here. Uh, So so sweet. Uh, I was here about a month ago. uh, Opened up one of the parables, and uh, I'm I'm back. And I understand that Josh Wilder was here a couple weeks ago. And then uh, yeah, rad. We we are really hopeful that we can start doing more of this kind of collaborative stuff between the two churches and see more more of one another. let's just get into it. I've had the parable read, parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Uh, but to tee it up, I want to say this. A great revealer of the human heart is to observe it when something goes really well for someone else, for someone else. Um, And not just what people say to their friends when something goes well for them, but, but if you have the ability to peer into what was actually being felt and experienced deep down on the inside, uh, it would be deeply revealing. There was, this, there was this time, I told this story years ago in a sermon, but it, it has been a long time. When I was in college, um, I was in a band, and uh, we were you know just at that age where we were like kind of, it was like we're optimism and, and pessimism and cynicism were starting to overlap, and we were kind of wondering, like, could we take this all the way? Could we, could we make a career out of this thing? Probably not, but maybe we should try it. I don't know. We're, and so we were going for it as best we could. And, you know, we were working, practicing every day, working on our songs. Uh, I wrote some of the songs for the band, and uh, it, was, it was a blast. It was super, genuinely one of the most fun times of my life. But simultaneously to our... Uh, <sighs> would be meteoric rise in the music industry. Uh, there was this other guy at, at our college, we all went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And uh, this other guy, I, I won't name him, uh, because he has, he has since become, like he's got top 40 singles and really big deal, uh, incredibly talented uh, singer, songwriter, piano player. Uh, but we, he was friends with us and we knew him and I believe we played, played shows together on occasion. And this thing happened where he was starting to get like this groundswell of attention. And then finally, the the crescendo of this was he won what was, I don't, I didn't know much about it, still don't, I guess, but it's called like the John Lennon songwriting competition, United States songwriting competition. So he had submitted one of his songs to the John Lennon songwriting competition and he won this national competition, which ended up getting him like studio time and all this stuff, uh, unlocked a lot of opportunities for him. And I remember getting that news that, that he had won this competition and being in, in my college dorm with the guys in my band. And I remember doing this bit where I like, had newspaper and I was like, tearing it up and throwing it around and stomping around, like, this is ridiculous, like overselling this moment, overacting. Uh, you know, the, the idea was that I was, I was doing a bit. I was, I was uh, you know, sort of ironically or self-consciously like, feigning this over-the-top reaction. I'm now here to tell you, uh, with, with over a decade of hindsight, that was my real reaction. <laughs> that was my genuine reaction, uh, despite, despite my uh, pretense otherwise. Here's what's even better. I didn't even submit a song to the contest. <laughs> it wasn't like he beat me in anything or whatever. Like, I didn't even try. And yet, and yet, the sight of this friend fellow musician, someone I really do respect and really, do, really did enjoy, really did love as a friend. His success instantly did not produce joy. didn't produce pride in him, in celebration of him. It didn't produce, oh, wow, that's amazing. Oh, cool, someone from our town could have a breakthrough like this. It produced anger, and it produced hatred. It produced envy. It produced jealousy. And if I'm honest, that is the case far, far, far more often than I'd like to admit. And about things far more serious than song competitions. So that, that issue, that issue is what Jesus, I think, is, is, is what Jesus is putting his thumb on in this particular parable. Um, so we're going to see that. We're going to see that as we get into it. The parable starts with this phrase, that many of the parables start with, for the kingdom of heaven is like. This is a kingdom parable, and I don't want you to miss this. So we've been, we've been like two months now going through the parables. This is true every time we open up one of these parables. I'm sure it's been said multiple times now. I want to say it again. What we're, what we're reading and listening to here is, is the incarnate Son of God, the, the the creator God of the universe who exists in three persons, the second person of that trinity incarnated in human flesh, coming to humans and saying, do you want to know what my kingdom is like? Do you? Then listen. Then listen. Don't let the gravity, you know, these, are, these parables are interesting, like these little stories and all, some of them almost feel like riddles. What does it mean? What did he mean when he said, why did he put it this way? Whatever it means, this is the Son of God whispering in your ear, do you want to know what the, the world that I'm bringing is like? Then listen to this and don't miss it and work to understand it. Amen? So let's pray. Let's pray and ask that he would help us do that because it really matters. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together. We thank you for this beautiful building. We thank you for all these brothers and sisters gathered together, Lord, um, to, to sing your praises, to hear your word, um, to buy baked goods, Lord. <laughs> we thank you for it all. But Father, as we do open up this particular parable here in Matthew 20, we pray that the weight of, uh, of what you have revealed would fall on us, Lord, that we would have hearts that are not indifferent Closed, but you would truly give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see what you intended for us to take away from this thing. And not just that we'd have a little bit more head knowledge filed away, but that we would know you, our God, more intimately. And in knowing you more intimately, we would love you more deeply, Father. And we cannot manufacture a lick of this. We need your spirit to make it so. Help us, Lord. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll I'll reread some of the parable, but not all of it, Uh, not this first section. To start, it starts with this sequence of hiring. Kingdom of heaven is like, and he talks about this landowner, this master, this master who is needing workers for the vineyard that he owns. So this is a wealthy man in the story Jesus is telling, someone who owns a, a big vineyard and is needing to hire day laborers to come do the work. And if you didn't know, the Jewish work day was synced up with basically sunrise to sunset, the, the, the sun up hours of the day. It was basically 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we've got these, these four groups that Jesus mentioned. they these early workers who'd shown up 6 a.m. right at sunrise, ready to work, hoping to be picked because they're day laborers. And to really understand what's going on here, you have to understand a little bit about the, the typical life of a, of a day worker in this time, and it's not so different from the, from the life of a day worker in our time. The, the, the issue was that day laborers were basically extremely vulnerable because they had no sort of, I don't know, there was no social welfare system for them to fall back on. There was no labor union to argue on their behalf. Uh, the, the, there was, in fact, compared even with slaves, most often, they had the rougher lot in life because a sl- generally, slave owners at least had an interest in maintaining the physical well-being of their slaves that they owned, that they might continue to work. So they had an interest in feeding them and clothing them, providing them a place to live, right? you know, all these things so that they can have a return on their investment. With a day laborer, it's just like, I don't know, get the job done, just get the job done, and I probably won't see you again tomorrow. So circumstances were tough and, and As is always the case with a a day worker, there was no guarantee that there'd be work tomorrow or today for that matter. Every day you'd show up again and again hoping that you'd get picked, hoping that there would be work for you, hoping that you'd actually have something to take home. And if not, you'd starve. You would starve. So this servant in Jesus' story, or this master, he goes, first of the day, and he finds a group. And he says, hey, I want to hire you. And that alone is great news for anyone in this economy. It's like, oh, my gosh, okay, I'm going to make something today. This is glorious. More than that, he says, I'm going to pay you a denarius, which is the standard kind of day's wage there. Uh, so for them to say, I'm going to be guaranteed, like, the fair and generous and good amount for a day's labor. Now, this is incredible. This is incredible. So you have to imagine these workers just, like, high-fiving. They're stoked about what's happening. If this, if this uh, owner, this landowner kept his word, this was he was evidently a generous and good man to work for. Today was indeed a good day. But we, so those guys go, they presumably get to work. But then we see that the landowner returns three more times, three more times to pick up more workers. At the third hour, that's nine a.m. The sixth hour, that's noon. The ninth hour, that's three p.m. And there was no negotiation here, but he said, I will give you for your labor whatever's right. Whatever makes sense for however many hours you're gonna be working, I will give you what's right. And these workers trusted him and said, okay, let's do it. And then there was one last group. This was a group picked up at the 11th hour. That's 5 p.m. So there's one hour of legitimate work left to do in the day. And this, this owner says, hey, I want you guys too. I want you guys too. Now, a quick question. Why do you suppose, why do you suppose this group hasn't been picked yet? Any ideas? Throw it out there, legitimately. Slept in? in? (laughs) Maybe. Any other ideas? I know you're all saying things and I can't hear you. The folly of this format, dare I say. (laughs) Hungover? Could be. What was that? Someone said something over here. Physical limitations. Is that what you said? Yeah. Hey, this is great. Why don't we just do this the whole time? <laughs> no, these are all good potential options. Here's, here's, I think, the bottom line of it. Whatever it was, they're the ones that no one wanted. These are the workers no one wanted. It's possible that these are the ones, yeah, maybe they're hungover. Or something. There's something about them. Maybe they have physical defects. Uh, maybe they don't look as strong. Maybe they look weaker. Maybe they don't look like they have as much energy. Uh, who knows? But whatever reason, this is, this is quite, quite sincerely the, the last kid picked at dodgeball, you know? It's the runt. And it's always a humiliating experience every time you're there. That's the case for this group. They're still hoping, clinging for hope. The 11th hour, they're like, maybe we can just earn an hour's worth of wage. Maybe and we'll just have something, we'll have scraps to take home to the family. They're still out there hoping and waiting. You know what? The landowner comes, he says, I want you to come work. And they do, they do. So you have to imagine this crew as well was very excited and just stoked to have at least something to do. They weren't expecting much in terms of pay, but they were at least going to have something. And then as with many of the stories Jesus Jesus tells, there's a twist, a twist that comes in verse 8. Verse 8 through 10 says this. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last, that's the, the last people that were hired, up to the first hired. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received... A denarius. A denarius. Huh. One hour of work and a whole day's generous wage. Wow. We read on in verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, when it was their turn, they thought they would receive more. Natural assumption, right? Like, oh my gosh, these guys worked one hour one hour, and they got the whole day's wage. What are we going to get? But each of them also received a denarius, exactly what was promised to them. So the owner pays the late, dejected, perhaps ill-equipped workers the full day's wage. And if the story stopped there, it would be a nice little story that Jesus told. We go, wow, this landowner is incredibly unthinkably generous with them. This group was going to get to go home and say, honey, I made 150 bucks an hour today. But the story doesn't stop there. The early workers, they saw this and they adjusted their expectations. They took their eyes off the the master. They looked to the side, said, wow, if they got that, what are we going to get? Maybe high-fiving again. But again, they got exactly what was promised, which was a generous full day's wage that previously they would have been so, so, so excited about. So are they excited? Are they excited that the master kept his word and they actually did get this thing that they were not guaranteed that they were so hoping for at the start of the day? Of course they were not. Of course they were not. Verses 11 and 12 continue on. It says that they grumbled and... and, uh, (laughs) If we understand, as we think we should, the landowner as a, as a substitute for God in this story, God faces, he deals with grumbling a whole lot in circumstances like this. And they raise a le- one legitimate point. They, they raise the point that, hey, these latecomers had worked far less and under much more fav- favorable conditions. The guys that got there in the beginning of the day, they had to work not only the long span of time, but the hardest hours, the noon sun beating down on their backs, right? The noon sun beating down on their backs, they had to, the, the, qua- the quality of their work was much harder in addition to the length. These other guys got to work in the cool of the afternoon. But the workers, the first group, they try to phrase this as like a justice issue of some kind, that they've been slighted in some way. When in reality, they are only bitter that I would, I would say someone else has been shown incredible grace. The landowner broke no promises to anyone, did he? He was Utterly, utterly a man of his word. He was more generous, not less. So the grumbling that this produces, this grumbling reaction is pure, unadulterated envy. It's envy, rooted in comparison, rooted in pride. And you know what the heart of their complaint is? They say it explicitly. We don't always say it. We're not always this (laughs) self-aware. It says, you have made them equal to us. That's it. That's what they're angry about. This speaks to the corrosive poison of comparison. The corrosive poison of comparison. They're wanting what someone else has they wanted more, they wanted to be considered of more value than the people who worked less than them. Comparison always dehumanizes other people by turning them into some sort of a yardstick that we might use to make sure that we're taller, we're better. And tragically, we often look to these comparisons and to the dehumanization of others to form our identities. So I just wanna stop there for a second and ask, can you relate to these people? Can you relate to these early workers? I, I would say, just ask the question who hasn't had this twinge? Again, when things go well for someone else, when you see someone else get the good thing that you want. I mean, the, the, the classic example is the promotion at work, right? You're working, you're working your best. Well, you're probably not working your hardest if you're honest, <laughs> but you're working nonetheless. You're doing all right. And your friend gets the big promotion. There's an opening, you're hoping for it, but this person gets it. Is your initial reaction in that situation to say, oh man, I'm so happy for them. I know they've really been working hard for this. I know they've wanted this. You know what, I know this will really be a benefit to their family for reasons A, B, or C. No. If you're like me, trust that many of you are. You go, oh man, if the manager knew, if he or she saw what I see, Clocking out a little bit early. Those lunches they're taking are pretty long. Never mind that they're with me. <laughs> you want to poke holes. You feel wronged. You feel slighted. I'm the one that deserves this. There's a lot of artists. There have been historically around Door of Hope churches, and that's, that's a sticky thing. Typically, I feel like artists are, are pretty good uh, at encouraging one another, but there's still this underlying thing You know, two people working hard, you know. The dream is to be able to live off your art, of course, if you're an artist. Make the transition to your day job where you can feed yourself off of the things that you're you're lovingly producing. But you start to see someone that you've, up to this point, been rooting for and working alongside, you start to see them get a little bit of acknowledgement, a little bit of recognition. They start booking shows that are a little better start making a little bit more money, start working less hours at the cafe, or whatever, what's your heart do? I remember, and it's, I assume, only worse now, about five years ago, uh, when, when uh, my wife and I were looking to, to buy a home in Portland, it was right as many of, our, many of our friends were as well, and it was a hot market then, it's an even hot, hotter market now, and I remember like, some of my very best friends getting a house, uh, purchasing a house right as we were starting to look. And it was textbook. My reaction, I, my, my words were, I am so happy for you. <laughs> this is incredible. Wow, could not be happier. But you know what my heart was doing. I don't even have to tell you. There's one more house off the market. Not only could it have been mine, should it have been mine. <laughs> I'm not kidding, best friends. That was, that's what was going on in here. Social media has figured out how to quantify these comparisons and competitions, put a numeric value in the terms of likes or retweets or whatever. What's really nasty is that this heart is at play in the things of church and ministry too. How big's your church? How many small groups? How many baptisms? What's your budget? How many people attended last Sunday? It's really, really easy to look over at the other, the other church or whatever and go, man, they must have made some kind of deal with the devil because the real faithful ministry is happening right here, you know? <laughs> this is where the faithful stuff's happening. at. Yeah. No part of our hearts are safe from this stuff. Every one of these examples I'm giving you, real world, these are the safe ones, okay? I'm not <laughs> you got to be my mentor or something to get the real, the real dark ones. These are plenty dark though. God would demand that his people rejoice with those who rejoice. In the words of the Apostle Paul, weep with those who weep. And we often do the opposite, at least in our hearts. People are rejoicing, we weep. Sometimes, cruelly, sickly, people are weeping, we rejoice. So what, is, what drives this? It could be a number of things where our hearts are tuned this way. I could think of at least two. One's a scarcity mindset. We think that there's just not enough for us. It's a zero-sum game. If somebody else gets something that I want, that means I don't get it. There's only so many houses, Portland proper. Somebody gets it, it's not mine. There's just not enough to go around, or it's just pure pride. We think that our value is being diminished or ignored Behind that is this idea that that we think we uniquely have what it takes to earn whatever it is that we're talking about. Just pure pride at play. These moments, something goes well for someone else. When you're standing in the line, the, the landowner says, I'm giving you all this generous thing. They reveal to us what we really think, what you really think about the grace of God every good thing is a gift, a grace from the Father of lights, and every good thing that happens is a chance for us to think, what do we really think about our God who is such a gracious giver? The story goes on, nears the end, verse 13, he replied to one of them, So they've been grumbling, they're they're, they're frustrated with the landowner, they raise their case that we just mentioned, and he replies to them, friend, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And then, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity there it is puts a point on it he raises two issues first is that he's sovereign okay clearly see now landowner Jesus is speaking about God is he allowed to is he or isn't he allowed to do with what he what he wants to do with what he has The implicit answer is yes, of course. He is sovereign. And we don't get to tell him what he wants to do. The second piece of it, though, is that what he wants to do is to lavishly go above and beyond in generosity, to bless all of his people with the same reward. we could say here is, is welcome into his family, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, a place in the family, and in the kingdom. All those blessings of the gospel. He gives them all equally without distinction. And it is his delight to do so. The last verse, verse 16, Jesus exits the story and he provides a commentary, like a a principle to kind of sum up the theme of this thing. And he says this, so what's all this story mean? Here's what it means. So the last will be first, and the first last. Have you heard that before? Jesus says this phrase in a couple of different contexts. Uh, In two of the gospels, it's in in the context of, of, uh, well one is in this parable, but this, this parable comes on the heels of the story in Matthew of Jesus with the rich young ruler. And after the ruler goes away, Peter's commenting on what they have done, what the disciples have done. This man's not willing to give up everything to follow you, but we have Jesus, and Jesus says, that's good. There will be reward, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he tells this parable. So this parable is meant to explain what did Jesus mean in giving that response? And here it is, he brings that phrase back to summarize it. And then there's another, another context in the gospel according to Luke where he uses this phrase, but at least part, at least one of the things Jesus meant by this phrase is not, uh, it, it's not fundamentally about workers' compensation politics, it's about the incredible generosity of the God that Jesus is, that Jesus represents, that Jesus is one person of this generosity that's not based on any merit or any sense of fair earning, but purely on his own gracious will to give. The theme of the story is that the last will be first and the first last. It means that there will be a monumental in the kingdom. Remember, we're talking about the kingdom is like in the kingdom when it comes in full, there will be a monumental flattening of the fortunes of the great and the lowly of the capable and the incapable, of the earning and the non-earning. It's like the words of Isaiah 40, verse 4. Mountains will be brought low. Valleys will be brought high. The image is everything will be flattened to make, it, make the path straight for the, for the day of the Lord. But I love that image. The radical grace of God means that all of his people who have repented and trusted in Jesus will get to experience the blessing of eternal life with him and all that it includes. And this is a radical flattening of how we think it's supposed to work because, yes, we can talk about grace. Yes, grace is beautiful. Thank God for the grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But we still, in our heart of hearts, I'll speak for myself, I so quickly to work, run back to works but Lord, I'm a pastor. I'm a professional Christian, okay? (laughs) I'm a professional Christian, Lord. You owe me. How is this person getting this blessing? I know the junk that they're dealing with. When it even comes to these things of like, just an invitation into the eternal life that he provides. We think we, sh- we should get a little higher. We should have a bit of a higher standing. Surely I'm not just like them when it gets down to it. Surely there's something that will distinguish me and make me different. He says, no, friend, it's all grace. It is grace all the way down. This is a radical flattening of how we think it's supposed to work. When salvation is by sheer grace, it is truly, truly, truly equal. Jesus' point is that reward in Jesus' kingdom will not be according to our own value systems. You've probably heard this before. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. There will be surprises, and we had best cultivate hearts that sincerely love those around us and want the best for them. So to take the whole thing, and to apply it. I love, I think, I believe it goes back to Teddy Roosevelt. The quote, comparison is the thief of joy. I think Jesus would agree. I think Jesus would agree. And that's no less when we are when we move into a conversation about the world of grace. Even with grace, comparison is a killer of joy. So surely what part of what Jesus is saying is that that we who expect to have earned greatly from God, to have earned greatly from God, are going to be disappointed when we see the inclusive generosity of Jesus. Jesus would have us, by the power of his spirit, by yielding to him, strike down every prideful impulse to begrudge the fortune of anyone else and to simply learn to celebrate the radically generous grace of God. And, you know, it's one thing for Jesus to say through this parable, through this mode of storytelling, hey, don't have that kind of heart. Don't begrudge God's generosity towards other people. It's another for there to be actually real motivation and enablement. Most moral systems, I would argue, you look out at systems across the world, uh, they would encourage you to not be envious or prideful. But why not? and how not, Jesus presents not just a beautiful teaching but a worldview in which this teaching can actually make sense because the gospel, the idea that the God of the universe has entered into our human mess, he has become among us, he's become one of us. He's taken the form of a servant to serve and to save us, to to do exclusively all that is necessary to bring lost and sinful and broken people to himself. If that is true, and if it's sincerely believed, it removes all the motivation for pride or for envy. And it deals with those, those underlying issues. You wanna talk about scarcity? There's not enough to go around. If the gospel is true, it means God's capacity for love and for provision is absolutely limitless. know that, right? There is no danger of somebody else that just needs a little bit more love maxing out God's account. You know what I mean? If God is to be generous with the person sitting next to you, it is of no threat to his ability to be generous to you. You will not be excluded from it. It is not a zero-sum game. More than that, even in the here and now, given the promises of the resurrection. I mean, if you don't think often about the promise, the future hope that we have of of Jesus returning with his kingdom in full, putting the world to rights, removing every bit of sin and evil and injustice and death from the world, the new heavens and the new earth, moved out and lived into for eternity future. If if that's not real to you, if that's not a, a huge part of your Christian hope, you're missing out because those promises mean We can be generous today, even with every material blessing, knowing that it all belongs to him, and he will take care of everyone, and no matter how much you pour yourself out in this life, there is another life that is unending. We can all afford to give as he has given to us. Second, if the Christian worldview is true, I'm first confronted with the fact that I deserve nothing at all. You hear people talk about, you know, to receive the good news, first you have to understand a little bit of bad news. I think that's true. One of those pieces of bad news in this case, if it's all by grace, that means I cannot earn it. I am utterly inert. There is no amount of good in me. My righteousness before him is like filthy rags. You have to be humbled by that not just pay lip service to it but actually let you, let your let the weight of that hit you like wow there was no way for me to come to this god and to earn anything with him all i deserved was condemnation but you don't wallow there that quickly gives way to the but <laughs> of and he loves you so much that he gave his only son he came to save you he died in your place He did everything necessary. He was not content to live into eternity future without you. So you're humbled by it, and then you're immediately just so surprised and blessed and encouraged and loved by that truth. So this kills our pride. The gospel does. Though we deserve nothing, he gives everything, and there is plenty to go around, friends. And we're reminded finally that Jesus is the one who did what the early workers couldn't do. Jesus left seedling connections to the gospel itself here. Jesus is the one who could leave what he was owed on behalf of those who were owed nothing by God. Jesus didn't stand around and complain to the Father when he had to go to Calvary (laughs) What, do I, what am I owed? What do I deserve? He willingly laid down his life for his friends, for his enemies for that matter. He died that we might live. He humbled himself to the form of a servant that we might be served If we truly understand these things, then Jesus and his gospel destroys all of our motivation for this kind of comparison, for this kind of pride, for this kind of envy. So I just say to you, what's the application of all this? Just look at Jesus. Just look at him daily, daily, daily look at him. Let him unravel these things inside of you. Become content in his grace. And then in light of the radical grace that Jesus has shown you, then may we may we be generous and gracious with our time, with our energy, with our gifts. May we, may we learn by his grace to look at others who receive good things from him and not be two-faced, to not begrudge his generosity, but to celebrate because we love our neighbors and we love our God. Amen? I think that's the parable. Well, let's pray. Father, every time, every time I preach, Lord, I'm, I'm struck with just the hypocrisy of it all. Lord, to give this message when you know this is one of the chief sins of my heart is hard. Uh, and if I have at all tried to present myself as someone who's figured this out, Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would humble me. Father, we desperately, we want to be the kinds of people who, who do not begrudge your generosity, where your great commandment is actually, actually makes its home in our lives, Lord, that we love you above all else, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And we are delighted when we see your your grace poured out on our brothers and sisters, Lord. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for just the utterly world-upending, value-upending thing that it is. We pray that that it would motivate us in our deepest places, Lord, that it would change the way we think of ourselves, our neighbors, we think of you because it is, in fact, grace all the way down, Lord, and we are so grateful for that. Thank you for saving us. Father, if there's anyone here that that has not, you know, is is here, uh, curious, perhaps, about Jesus, yeah, sure, I'll come to church, I'll listen to a guy talk for 30 minutes or whatever. Um, Lord, may the fact that you say this is what your kingdom is like, may that come to bear on them. Lord, may there be people even today that say, I, I, if that's what his kingdom is like, I want to be a part of that. Father, and would you reveal yourself to them? Would you draw them to yourself? May, may today be the day when they would step out in faith and find your gracious open arms. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for this time. Pray that you would continue to press these things deeply into us as we go about our week. We pray this all in Jesus' name amen hey friends this is russ
0: Lacey, one of the pastors here at door of hope southeast thanks for listening to this teaching we always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that but if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to jesus and minister here in the city of portland We'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click give from the menu bar. May God bless you.